We're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can stand with me, and we'll read that. We've been going through the uh, Beatitudes, and so far we've done the first three, and today we're going to look at the fourth one, but we're going to read the whole uh, section for the sake of context. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your, your word here. Thank you for the Beatitudes. And we just pray that as we look at the fourth Beatitude today, that your spirit will really take your words and speak to the hearts of everyone here, Lord. Just pray that this will be a blessing and that by the power of your spirit and your grace that you will enable us to apply what your word teaches us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, the Beatitudes, as Mike has mentioned, was directed toward Christians. They were directed toward believers. So that means every one of these Beatitudes, every one of these uh, characteristics should be true of Christians and therefore should be true of you and I. And that, of course, includes the one we're looking at this morning in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That means that every one of us should have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness if we're a true believer. Now, this became clear to me uh, many, many years ago, when I was in sixth grade, one of the things we had to do in our classes, we had to read a Mark Twain story that was called uh, The Story of the Good Little Boy. And I'm just going to read you just the, the beginning of it. And this is what he says. He goes, once there was a good little boy by the name of Jacob Blivens. He always obeyed his parents, no matter how absurd and unreasonable their demands were. And he always learned his book and never was late at Sabbath school. He would not play hooky, even when his sober judgment told him it was the most profitable thing he could do. None of the other boys could ever make that boy out. He acted so strangely. He wouldn't lie, no matter how convenient it was. He just said it was wrong to lie, and that was sufficient for him. And he was so honest that he was simply ridiculous. Well, he goes on like that. And the way the story ends, uh, near the end, all these bad little boys that thought, you know, the good little boy was kind of strange, they got into uh, something, they were, um, they were tying all these dogs together, and they were tying them uh, together with uh, cans of nitroglycerin or something. And so the good little boy walks in there, and of course he doesn't approve of this, and uh, he's going to help those dogs, you know. Well, the owner comes, and all the bad little boys, you know, take off and run away, and, you know, Jacob Blivens, he's going to stay there, and he's going to talk to the owner. When the owner walks in, the owner doesn't really give him a chance to say anything. He just whacks him so hard, there's this big explosion, 
And that's the end of the good little boy. Well, <laughs> when I was in sixth grade and I read this story, my reaction was, well, good, you know, that little goody two-shoes, you know, they didn't like the kid anyway, you know. And, of course, the way Mark Twain writes the story, you know, that's, that's kind of the expectations of, of your reaction to it. Well, a couple years later when I was in eighth grade, uh, near the beginning of eighth grade is when I really became a Christian. I mean, I went to Sunday school, and I thought of myself as a Christian, and in a, uh, I knew a lot of the stories in the Bible and stuff, but it wasn't until the beginning of eighth grade that, that God really became real to me. It's where God went more from just, you know, the head knowledge and knowing about Jesus, and yes, he died from sins and that kind of thing, to where he, I really knew him personally. He really became real to me. And that's the experience I had in, you know, without going into more detail, at the beginning of the eighth grade year. Well, in my English class, my eighth grade English class, my teacher, you know, was really into Mark Twain, and we were doing the section on uh, Mark Twain, and we ended up doing the story again. But the odd thing was, it was the exact same story, but my reaction was totally different now. I, was, I found myself identifying with the good little boy, despite Mark Twain's, you know, spin on things. It kind of puts a negative spin on it toward the uh, good boy. Yet I couldn't help, you know, identify with this kid who always wanted to be good and this kind of thing. And my, my perspective and, and my uh, view of the story was like just 180 degrees from what it had just been a couple years earlier in sixth grade. And that's because, you know, I had changed. And not that I was necessarily a bad kid in elementary school. I think most kids would have considered me a good kid. But, you know, something had changed in my heart. You know, my worldview had just changed, and I, and I saw things differently, and I did have this desire to be good that I didn't even quite realize uh, until um, I saw how I, differently, how I reacted differently to the story. And, and the thing is, after we finished reading the story, in, in my eighth grade teacher then had us write a, uh, you know, like a journal entry, you know, and the question was, do you want to be a good boy or a bad boy, or a good boy or girl, a bad boy or girl? So, of course, I wrote, I, I wanted to be good. Well, when she... Uh, when we were done, she then wanted a show of hands. Okay, how many put down that they wanted to be a, a good boy or girl? No, no. First she asked, how many, how many want, put down they wanted to be a bad boy or girl? She asked that one first. Well, I looked around, because I was sitting near the front of the room. I looked around, and everybody raised their hands. I couldn't believe it. I think, and so then, then she asked, okay, how many put down they wanted to be you know, a good boy? And I kind of just sheepishly raised my hand, because I was the only one. Um, and then the, the boy next to me goes, oh, look, Connie, you're so weird, you know, this kind of thing. Because, uh, you know, no, no, I was the only one. And, and, and it's weird because even there was a girl that went to our youth group who kind of went along with everybody else. I felt so lonely at the time. But, um, you know, the point is it, it illustrated to me how my view had changed, you know, how this truth that there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness, to live that righteous life becomes a part of your, of your psychological makeup because you have a new nature now. So now when you... When you sin, before where you, you didn't care, now you feel like asking for forgiveness. I would never ask for forgiveness before, but now I, I would. Someone who is not a Christian, who's on the outside looking in, you know, this, this idea of a pursuit of a righteous life really carries no appeal, generally. But then we've got to ask the question, what do we mean by righteousness? What is true righteousness? When I was uh, in high school, in my high school youth group, uh, we were in a group, and we were talking about confessing our sins, how we need to do that. And then one boy in the group there said, well, you know, I, I've heard that before, 
And I remember after school, I was home, it was in the evening, and, and I, I decided I was going to do that. I was going to confess my sins. So he says, I sat there, and I, I couldn't think of any sins to confess. I couldn't think of anything I'd done wrong, you know. And I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I, I can sort of identify with that, you know. But that's because we, in, in our early stages of Christianity, I guess, we're thinking of righteousness as basically not doing what you're not supposed to be doing. You know, all the do nots, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery, all this kind of stuff. I'm thinking, well, I, I didn't do any of those things today. I guess I had a perfect day, you know. And so, but then, as you get older, you realize that, that righteousness is more than just the, the do nots. There's also the sins of omission, the things that we should be doing that we're not doing. You know, was I kind to people today? And certainly as a Christian, from what the Bible says, you know, did I, did I witness if I had an opportunity today? You know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. I mean, the standard can get pretty high. And then we can kind of go, gee, I guess, uh, I guess I'm kind of falling short. But even with that righteousness, so what Jesus is talking about here, is more than simply do's and don'ts, as we often think of righteousness. There's a purpose in righteousness. Let me illustrate like this. Suppose a husband loves his wife, well, hopefully that's normally the case, and he wants to, he does things for his wife, you know? On Valentine's Day, would just come up, he buys her flowers or something, and then at times he takes her out to dinner, you know, goes on that, you know, takes her out on a date once in a while, helps out around the house, or does things that, you know, that makes her happy, you know, makes sure he keeps the toilet seat lowered and all that kind of stuff, you know, the kind of things that, that makes her happy, that she said, would you please do that, so okay. Now, why would he do that? Well, hopefully he does it because he loves his wife, he wants to please her, because he knows that's going to make for a good relationship, right? And if doing little things here and there makes her happy, then you do those things. I mean, how bizarre would it be if, uh, if, say, you walk into a flower shop and here's a guy buying flowers. And you go, oh, is that for your wife? No, no, I'm not married. Oh, for your girlfriend? No. No, I don't have any relationships. Well, then why are you buying flowers? Oh, I just like buying flowers. You know, I mean, that's, that, would seem, that would seem a little strange, you know. You know, making reservations for dinner for two at some nice restaurant. Goes there by himself. Well, why'd you make it for two? Ah, I just like doing that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's, you know, when you do those things... You know, it's a means to an end. You don't do those things just to be doing those things. When we are righteous, we're not righteous just for the sake of being righteous. Righteousness is a means to an end. It's, it's a path to, to knowing God better and having that relationship with God. And it's that view of why we do it, the purpose of why we live a righteous life, why we desire to live a righteous life, that keeps righteousness and the desire for righteousness to... to to degenerate into legalism, which is really what you have with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were probably the supreme example of people who did right just for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of pride. They could feel good about themselves, and they could say, you know, kind of a look at me, and they wanted others to look at them and say, wow, now there goes a righteous person. And they'd follow traditions, that kind of thing. The Sadducees, they would kind of twist Scripture to suit their own ideas, and that's really a lot of what we have today. People, you know, doing that which is right in their own eyes, as I, said, I think it says in Judges. You know, this idea that right and wrong and, and moral standards and, and all that is, is relative. That's kind of the common view today. In other, in other words, there, there are no absolutes. I mean, I'm talking from a non-Christian perspective here. 
you know, the, the perspective is that there are no absolute of right and wrong. It's all relative. What's right for you may not be right for me. Depends on the culture that you live in or what time and age maybe you grew up in. You know, it's all relative. There are no absolute of rights and wrongs. The last poll I heard of was like 70% of the people accept that view. And the other 30% are probably evangelical Christians. Now, we, we accept an absolute standard of right and wrong. But then we have to ask this question, okay, so where is this standard of right and wrong? Where does the standard of righteousness come from? Where do we get it? Well, as Christians, our answer would be that we get it from the Bible. The Bible teaches us what's right and wrong. The Bible teaches us how we ought to be living our lives. And then we could ask the question, all right, um, where did the Bible get it? Well, our answer would be the Bible gets it from God. The Bible is God-inspired. God inspired those who wrote the Bible to write what he wanted written. And then we could go even one step further. Okay, where did God get it? Were these just, did God just kind of arbitrarily decide what would be right and wrong? Did he kind of think, well, let's see, lying, that's not too good. You know, let's put that in the wrong category, you know. Uh, stealing, oh, somebody might get hurt, definitely, you know, the do not, you know, category. Um, Envy, envy, well, let's see, you're not quite hurting anybody, it's kind of natural, but that's, yeah, well, I think I'll put it over the do not. Being kind, that's good, let's put that over in the, you know, do, I mean, did God just kind of arbitrarily decide, well, this is what I'm going to make to be morally right, and I'm just going to make this morally wrong. How did, how did he decide that? True righteousness is based on God's character. That's where he got it. It wasn't, he didn't just decide what to do, it was based on who he was, on his nature, on his character. For example, in Titus 1-2, it says that God cannot lie. Now, there it doesn't say that God doesn't lie, although that would be a true statement. But it says God cannot lie. You say, wait a second, you mean there's something God can't do? Yeah, he can't lie. He can't go against his own nature. It, is not, it goes against his nature to be able to lie. If you want to look at all the commandments of the Bible... Jesus summed it up for us in Matthew 22, where he said, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments, and all the other commandments, all the do's and don'ts we have in the Bible are all based on that. Why are they based on that? If you look in 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. Again, it doesn't say that God loves. There are passages that do say that. But in this particular one, it says that God is love. It's not a verb there, it's actually an adjective. It's describing who God is. It's describing his character. That's his very nature, is love. And hence, you know, to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, the greatest commandments. And hence, all the commandments are based on that. And therefore, we can conclude all the commandments are really based on God's character, on his nature, on who he is. So therefore, when we're seeking righteousness, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what we're really hungering and thirsting for is to be more like God, to be more Christ-like. You know, young boys, when they're growing up, want to be like their dads. I mean, if you have a good relationship, at least. (laughs) They want to be like their dads, right? And that can be good or bad. And when they get older, maybe they kind of develop their own personality, but but there's still that that basic uh, nature there. In 1 Peter, God said, directed to us. He said, be holy for I am holy. That's why. Why should you be holy? Because that's how I am. That's who I am. That is my characteristic. You call me your heavenly father. 
then be like your heavenly Father. I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. He's not asking us to just act like him. He is asking us to be like him. Now, we're called to be righteous. We're called to be like God. And, and there's many passages throughout the Bible, not this one, that talk about righteousness, that, that call us to a life of righteousness. But then what do we do with verses? Like in Romans 3, 9 through 12, this is what it says. For we have already charged, this is Paul talking, we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There is none who does good. We're all, none of us really can measure up to the standard of righteousness. The Bible says that that none of us do good. That's why we're so incapable of saving ourselves. That's why we're so totally dependent on God's grace. And yet, we're commanded to be righteous. In fact, here, how can we even you know, follow what it says in this beatitude? We can never really be righteous. So then how can we ever be satisfied? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. But how? We can't be righteous. Well, I believe there's a double fulfillment to this. First off, When we die, those who die in the Lord will know the satisfaction in full. 1 John 3.3 says that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we will be like him. Now think about that. We will be like him. Now, righteousness is based on God's character, right? When he asks us to be righteous, asking us to be like him. And it says when when Jesus appears at that time, we will be like him. In other words, we will then be righteous. We will have that righteousness that we can never fully achieve in this life. But then, when we die in the Lord, uh, we will have that righteousness. And at that time, we will know the peace and the joy and the satisfaction that we can never really fully know in this life. God will honor, eventually will honor that desire for righteousness. He will fulfill it. And I believe that that desire for righteousness is, like I said, characteristic of those who truly know the Lord. Otherwise, I I doubt how sincere that that desire for righteousness would be if it's not self-serving in some way. Now, I also believe that there is a satisfaction in this life. Maybe not to the same degree as when we die, but there is a certain degree, a certain satisfaction that we have in this life. How can that be? Well, look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God that we might become the righteousness of God. So in a sense, we are righteous. Not a righteousness of our own that we could never achieve, but rather a righteousness that that God has imputed to us based on what Jesus has done. The, The law and obeying the law was weak because in our own flesh we could not do it. But God is saying, I'll take care of that for you. You know, I'll put your sins on Jesus and I will give you my righteousness. So we have a righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from God, and this results in a life of, of, a, of a satisfaction in this life if we walk by the Spirit, as it says in Romans. You know, in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire, Eric Little, the, the Christian runner, 
they were on their way to the Olympics in Paris, and on the train there, you know, with the sleeping car, and in the morning, uh, the conductor asked Eric Little, he goes, well, how'd you sleep? He goes, oh, I slept like a log. And the conductor goes, oh, you must have a clear conscience. You know, and that's true. When we live this life of rights that God calls us to, you know, we have that clear conscience. We sleep good at night. Paul said um, in Acts 24, he says, I always do my best to always maintain a blameless conscience before both God and before men. Paul could say that. He could say that in this life, and we can say that too. Or can we? I mean, that's something you have to ask yourself. Can you say that you have a clear conscience before both God and before men? Now, having recognized that, that we have, you know, um, we ha- that we have no true righteousness of our own, you know, um, we have the rights that comes from God. So we've got almost a, um, a dichotomy here. I believe that the Bible talks of righteousness from two perspectives. I think that's why you get some verses that seem almost conflicting, but it's not really. One is from the human perspective. From a human perspective, we can achieve righteousness. And this is, this is kind of more the do's and the don'ts, I think, as, as people think of it. And as Christians, we should be living by a certain moral standard that others would look at us and say, well, there goes a good person. You know, our, our lives should be a good witness for those around us. We should be good citizens. We should be obeying the laws of the land, even if you don't agree with them. I mean, unless the law directly says you can't do something that God has commanded you to do. If it says you can't go out and witness or something like that, we need to disobey it. But if it's something like, you know, you've got to wear your seatbelt. Oh, who's, you know, state of California telling what to do? You know, that's what the law says. So, you know, even if you don't agree, you, you do it. Why? Because we're going to be good citizens. We're going to obey the laws and land. We're not going to do anything to have give non-Christians a reason to point at us and say, well, you know, what kind of example is that? We should have a reputation of people who don't lie. You know, our word can be trusted. Someone who's faithful to their spouse, someone who pays their taxes, someone who doesn't cheat in school or helps others that, that want to do that. Now, that might, might, make, might not make you popular, but you'll be respected. We can be a good witness and we can live a righteous life uh, from that human perspective, and that's what we're called to do. But as Christians, we're also aware of God's perspective. And from his perspective of his perfect standard of righteousness, you know, based on his character, not on human standards, and not on the standards of do's and don'ts, we realize that you know, we can never come up to that standard. We realize that our righteousness is as filthy rags, as it says in Isaiah. And that's why this beatitude does not say, blessed are those who are righteous, for they shall be satisfied. Moses doesn't say that. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, this is the only beatitude that words it like that. All the other beatitudes assume that that's the way you are going to be. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Or like next week, blessed are the merciful. But in verse 6, it doesn't say blessed are the righteous. It says blessed those who hunger and thirst for it. Because we can't do it on our own. We can desire it, and God says, well, that's what I'm looking for. And now I will give you my righteousness based on what Jesus has done. Assuming that you ask forgiveness and ask for Jesus to come into your heart. Every true believer should hunger and thirst for righteousness. That should be characteristic of us. In Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2, the verse you've probably heard of, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. 
My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63.1. O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee, my flesh yearns for thee. You know, we hunger and thirst for a lot of things in life, and usually we associate that with uh, food, right? When we think of those terms, hungering and thirsting. You know, every day after uh, church, you know, first thing that our kids ask when we get in the car is, what's for lunch? You know, Christine sometimes wants to go to have dim sum. Sometimes we say yes, sometimes we say no, we got leftovers at home. Uh, a man in a desert may be dying of thirst for water, but that doesn't mean that he's going to get that water, right? There's no guarantee. But here we have a guarantee. Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. It's a guarantee. God says, you hunger and thirst for this, I will honor it. In Jeremiah 29, 12 through 13, God says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God says, if you search for me, if you're looking for me, if your heart is such that you're sincerely desiring me, then that search will be successful. I will see to it that you find me if you search for me with all your heart. God will honor that. You know, and this really speaks to the great paradox of the Christian life. Tozer talked about this. To have found God, because as Christians we found him. To have found God and yet, on the other hand, to still pursue him. To have received the righteousness of Jesus on the one hand, but on the other hand, to still hunger and thirst for that righteousness. It's kind of a paradox. Um, But it's true. Even in the hungering and thirsting, there can be a peace and satisfaction. A hunger and thirst for true righteousness that leads to a closer walk with God is kind of a a sweet hunger and thirst. Usually when we think of hungering and thirsting, we we think of it in the negative terms. Have you ever been on a diet? You know, that's, you know, you always feel hungry. I've never really been on, had to go dieting because I've never been overweight, except when I was in high school. I went out for wrestling for one year. Coach wanted me to get down five pounds, and I was not overweight as it was. Um, so I tried, you know, I got down to two or three pounds. I never quite got down to five pounds. Yet one time I got the flu, and got, but as soon as I got well again, I gained it back. So, and I remember thinking, boy, when wrestling is over, I am going to pig out. And I remember the last practice we had, I went home, and wrestling was over. And I, I wasn't even all that hungry, but I pigged out anyway because I told myself I was going to do that, you know, because I just didn't like this always feeling hungry. Hunger is not normally a positive thing, but here, it's a hunger and thirst, it's a real hunger and thirst. But it's not necessarily a painful thing. It, it can be almost a sweet thing, if that, makes, if that makes sense. Because that means that there's a peace and a joy when you're pursuing the right thing in life. When you're on the, you know, if you imagine it like a journey on a path towards some goal, when you know you're on the right path, there's a sense of satisfaction in that. You know, if you've ever gone on a long trip, uh, sometimes I've gone on these long trips and I'll be on the freeway and... There are times where I'm thinking, am I on the right freeway? Did I get on the right turnoff? You know, and it's a very uncomfortable feeling until I see some sign that you know, shows me I'm on the right freeway. And then, whew, then, I, then I feel good. Why? Because I'm on the right path, and I know I'm on the right path. And, and, and that's the way it can be in our lives. 
When you know most people who don't know the Lord, I would say most, all the people who don't know the Lord, they're on the wrong path. It might seem good to them, and from a human perspective, it might seem good, but if you don't know the Lord, you're not on the right path. When we're on the right path that God wants us to be, there's a peace and a satisfaction in that. Now, this should be true of every Christian. And yet, if we're honest, many of us would have to confess that we're not really experiencing that. We'd have to say, you know what? I know this should be characteristic of me. I know I should be hungry and thirsting for this righteous life. But I don't know that that's always true. And I, I, I know it seems like I don't always experience this peace and this joy that the Bible talks about. So why do we not always experience this? I think the first question I would have to ask is, what is it you really desire in your life? Paul said... For me to live is Christ. For you to live is what? Success in whatever you're doing, school or business, prosperity or money, comfort, having your relationships be the way you want them to be, or maybe things like entertainment or sports or whatever. What is it that you're really living for? What is it that you really desire in life? Charles Spurgeon said, Man must first of all be cured of all his ardor or love for earthly pursuits before he can feel the fervor for heavenly ones. No man can serve two masters, and until the old selfish principle has been driven out, he will not begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, even as a parent, sometimes I wonder, you know, you want to make your kids happy, and so you give them things that they want. Sometimes I wonder, you know, am I catering to their desires? happiness instead of focusing more on their desires for God. You think about that as a parent. As, as a family, you can focus on, you know, are we desiring God's righteousness or are we always desiring to be happy? You know, whenever you complain about things, that might be indications that you're not putting Christ first. You're desiring selfish things. And so you argue. Those who seek God will desire to be righteous. The two go hand in hand. No one who sincerely seeks God does so because, you know, they want to go out and steal or they want, you know, to commit adultery. They want to, you know, live a selfish life. Nobody desires and seeks God for that reason. They seek God because they know their lives are messed up and they finally decided to put their pride aside and come to God. It was unrighteousness that messed their lives up to begin with. And those who seek God desire righteousness, not for the sake of righteousness, but as a means to an end, to find God, to know Him, to have that closer relationship with Him. Now, if we hunger and thirst for other things, then we won't hunger and thirst for God. Those desires for other things will push out our desire for God. You know, Jesus said you can't serve both God and man. You can't have both. I think a lot of times as Christians, we think that. At least we act that way. We may not consciously think, well, I can have this desire for this, and I can have this desire for God. But really, the two are opposed to each other. If you desire other things, it will push out your desire for God. We need to examine our lives. Now, you might say, well, okay, I'm not hungering and thirsting for what I should be. I can recognize that, but then what do you do about it? It's one thing to recognize, okay, my heart's not where it ought to be, but then where do we go from there? And I would suggest that we look at the previous Beatitudes, I believe the Beatitudes are sort of like a progression that one builds upon the other. The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you recognize that you're poor in spirit? Do you see your bankruptcy? Do you see 
what's lacking in your soul, that there's an emptiness there outside of Jesus. Now, we can understand in terms of finances. I could look at my bank account and say, gee, there's something lacking there, you know. I can understand, you know, bankruptcy or an emptiness in financial terms, but do you recognize it in your own spirit? Can you look at your spirit, your life, your soul, and say, you know what, there's something missing there? Are you willing to confess that you have not lived your life the way you should have, that you've fallen short on numerous occasions? And then secondly, in the second beatitude, once you recognize your bankruptcy, do you mourn? Do you mourn for how far short your life has come compared to to how it should have been? Do you weep? Not necessarily, you know, real tears, but is there a sadness in your heart when you know you've come up short? There's not much you can do about it. And then, thirdly, is there that, does that lead to a meekness, a humbleness that takes your pride away? Because I believe pride is maybe the number one reason why people don't come to the Lord. When those three are in place, and that's the foundation of your soul, then you can truly start to, to hunger and seek after the righteous life that only God's grace can give, to long for a life that pleases God. You know, there's a, uh, a book I read years ago. It's called Beyond Betrayal. It's about uh, Carolyn Coons and her, her journey. Now, she eventually uh, came to know the Lord. Now, when she was... Uh, Younger, she basically grew up in, a, in an, an abusive home where she was unloved and unwanted. Her father was abusive and beat her sometimes. And as you might guess, um, she, <laughs> she ended up being a problem in school, wasn't always that good of a student, was a, a behavior problem, discipline problem, the kind of student that uh, teachers pull their hair out. And, uh, and she sometimes would get other students, too, to kind of go along with her. And it's like she got involved in stealing bikes and this kind of thing. And she had this whole uh, scheme going. Well, in fifth grade, there was one teacher, a Mr. Franklin, that was her favorite teacher. And so this Mr. Franklin had called her over and wanted to talk to her. And he said, you know what, Carolyn? I'm going to be leaving tomorrow, and I just wanted to uh, talk to you before I left. And so she was expecting some you know, dressing down type, you know, which is what she was used to. But he says, you know what, a lot of the teachers here, you know, think that you're bad. She just kind of shrugged at that. She was used to hearing that. He goes, but you know what, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that's all a cover-up. I believe deep down you're really good. Not just good, but I mean really good. And she didn't know how to react to that. You know, I, I believe that, you know, when I come back and see you again, I want to see that real you. I want to see that, that really good person and, and stop this, this facade you hide behind that you think, you know, makes friends or whatever. I want to see that really good person because I, I see that in you. I believe that that's really true of you. Well, she couldn't believe that he was telling... This was his, her favorite teacher. And he said it in such a way that it really made her believe it. He really thinks she's good. And because she respected him, she felt like, well, if he thinks I'm good, I, I guess I must really be good. And she was feeling really good about herself, you know. She goes, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm good. She really started to believe it. Well, she was sitting in class, and uh, she got a note from one of her friends, one of her schemers. They were in the midst of uh, stealing some bikes again. And then she thought, oh, no. You know, we can't steal bikes anymore. We can't steal anything. 
you know, she decided she had to kind of stop that. She goes out there, and, and he's already taking a bike out of the bike rack, and so she's grabbing and kind of pulling it back. He goes, no, we can't steal anymore. We can't steal bikes anymore. And they're going, what are you talking about, you know? And so she's trying to say, we can't steal anymore. And in, in the midst of doing this, you know, the teacher, Mr. Stokes, comes out and catches him. And uh, he is just in a rage, and he grabs her and pulls her in the front of the class and, and says, you know, here's the, you know, here's who you think's your friend. This is the one she's stealing bikes, and you think she's, you know, she's funny when she cheats and all this kind of thing. Well, she's no friend of yours. I'm just going to pick it up from there. And he goes, he, sh- he, shook, he shook me to full attention. Look at her. She's no good, absolutely no good. I looked past him to see the 32 stunned and horrified faces of my friends. Wasn't anyone going to help me? I was trying to stop stealing the bikes. I searched for Mr. Franklin. A wave of nausea swept through my stomach when I spotted him. Tears streamed down his face. I wanted to tell him what had happened. He needed to know how much he'd helped me. Believe in me, Mr. Franklin. You can still believe in me. I was trying to be good, I pleaded silently. He lowered his head to his arms on on the desk. He, too, was helpless against Mr. Stokes and his uncontrollable anger. I had disappointed him. He wouldn't look at me. He was the best man I knew. If he wouldn't help me, who was ever going to show me how to be good? You know, and she eventually did become a Christian, though. It was later, like in high school, some friend invited her to church. But here was someone that at that stage in her life wanted to be good because... Someone believed in her. Someone who she respected, her favorite teacher, believed in her, believed she was good. And that was a motivation for her to be good. Again, not because she wanted to be good for goodness sakes. (laughs) She wanted to be good for Mr. Franklin's sake. And how much more should that be true of us? We're talking about the God who created the universe that we say we serve. And he looks at us and he says, I know your sin. I'm aware of your sin. But when I look at you, I don't see your sin. I see you through the blood of Jesus Christ, and I see a righteousness that I have given you. And someday, when you stand in in my presence, everybody that looks at you, I'm going to present you as holy and righteous and without reproach and blameless. And not only that, I'm not only going to just present you as righteous, I'm going to present you as my own child. Even Mr. Franklin didn't say that. And this is the God of the universe we're talking about. You know, if Carolyn does it for a favorite teacher, and we're talking about the God of the universe, our Heavenly Father that we say we love and we serve, what kind of motivation should that be for us? And it's not just talk. I mean, we really are righteous in Jesus. We really are His child. We really will be reigning with Him, you know, for a thousand years in the new heaven and new earth and all of that. I mean, that's a reality. It's not just something we're making up to make ourselves feel good. God says that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you really desire to be Christ-like, to live that life that you know pleases God because you love Him, God says, I will see to it myself that you are satisfied. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what it teaches us. Thank you for the way it inspires us. And we just pray that by your grace and that by your power working in our lives that we can live a life that pleases you, that we can say we have a clear conscience before God and man, that we can so desire 
to want to serve you and to, and to please you, God, that every other desire just pales in comparison. Lord, we just pray for your grace, because that's what it's going to take. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.